Hi everyone, it's Jack Bishop. You might have seen me on America's Test Kitchen on public television. If you love listening to Proof, and you better love it, please consider supporting our work by subscribing to an ATK digital membership. What's the benefit? Everything we do. Recipes, product reviews, taste tests, it's all about rigor. We spend nearly $11,000 developing every recipe. It takes us 45 days to product test every piece of equipment we review. Sure, you can Google a roast chicken recipe for free, but we stand behind the claim that our version is far better. That's why nearly half a million people are loyal ATK Digital subscribers. We'd love to give you a 14-day test run. Just go to atkpodcast.com and I'd be happy to give you a free trial. Thank you. Every country, city, diaspora has that one very special treat. The one that you buy in bulk and pack in your carry-on, wrapped tightly for long flights. The one you tell out-of-town visitors, you just gotta try this. In Argentina, it's the Alfajor. Reporter Facundo Iglesia went on the streets of Buenos Aires and asked passers-by one simple question. What would you say is the staple Argentinian treat? It's an alfajor. Sí, claramente es el alfajor. El alfajor. Should I answer in English? Eh, <laughs> alfajor, of course. The alfajor, of course. Here's Facundo Iglesia himself explaining it. The alfajor is basically a chocolate-coated caramel cookie sandwich. Not exactly caramel, but dulce de leche. The alfajor was consumed in Argentina before the country was even called that. Among its long-lost relatives is the turrón, a dessert that's prevalent in parts of what was known as Islamic Spain. The alfajor is so beloved in Argentina that there's even people who dedicate their lives to sampling them. Let me introduce you to Facundo Calabro. He's the self-proclaimed catador de alfajores, or alfajor taster. He's amassed almost 100,000 followers on his alfajor taster Twitter account. There, he posts content all about the latest alfajores that he's tried. He even wrote a book about them. Y que genera un fanatismo que es comparable al que genera un equipo de fútbol, ¿no? Calabro says that the alfajores generate a fanaticism that is comparable to that generated by a soccer team, and that people defend particular brands for reasons like this is the alfajor that defines me, or this is the alfajor of my childhood. There is one alfajor that Calabro himself calls the alfajor of the people. It's called el grandote, the big one. It's a triple stacked cookie with double dulce de leche, or the caramelized milk interior. Maybe it is not the most delicious one in the market, but it's cheap, it's tasty, it's sold by street vendors. Some even eat it as a substitute for breakfast on their commute to work. But something happened to El Grandote in 2017. The beloved Alfajor was at the brink of disappearing. Facundo wanted to learn more about the fight to keep it alive at the factory that makes El Grandote. It's called La Nerva. Facundo and his reporting partner, Sofia Kwan, wrote about it in Narratively in 2022. El Alfajor Grandote. Eh, do you remember its jingle? ¿Te acordás el jingle? Sí, sí, lo ponen, lo ponen siempre en la radio. Alfajor 
Today on Proof from America's Test Kitchen, we bring you the story of a revolution, the workers behind it, and an update on the fight against all odds for the delicious Alpha Whore. I'm Kevin Pang. Stick around. Ever get overwhelmed by all the different types of butter that are out there? I know the difference between salted and unsalted, but what about the ones that say 80% butterfat versus 82% butterfat? Does that 2% make a difference? I'm bringing in Cook's Illustrated Editor-in-Chief Dan Souza to explain. So it's a great question, and it actually does make a big difference. The butterfat can affect how rich, spreadable, or melty your butter is when you're cooking with it and spreading it on toast and bread and stuff like that. But it also plays a big role in baking as well, especially for something like croissants or any other laminated dessert. That higher butterfat content means that it actually ends up being more pliable. So you can roll it out more easily and get these really fine layers of dough and butter and get the flakiest results when it bakes up. Taste the difference with Plugra Premium Butter's 82% butterfat content. Visit Plugra.com for more information. Reporter Facundo Iglesia brings us today's story. La Nirva Factory is a three-story tall, half a block wide behemoth in the outskirts of Buenos Aires. It employed around 120 people in 2018, but La Nirva is much more than a building for most of the workers. For them, La Nirva is like home away from home. The workers are a tight-knit unit, kind of like a family. I interviewed a lot of them, and each one played a different role in the fight to save the Alfajor. We are going to be meeting them throughout this episode. Most of them have been working at La Nirva for at least a decade. Carmen, a cook and operator who's been there for over 20 years, started at La Nirva because she had to drop out from high school to provide for her family. Carmen told us it was her first job and that she had her first kid while working here, who is now an adult. Carmen is a family woman who not only bakes in the factory, she's always the one cooking in her house. Partly because of that, she says that La Nirva is like a second home. But she's not the only one that feels like this. Marcelo, a cleaning employee, also found his home at La Nirva right out of school. Marcelo looks like a big teddy bear, but one that will go to great lengths to protect his own. When I first met him in the factory, it was clear that everybody knew Marcelo was the leader. During his second year in La Nirva, when he was just 22 years old, he became the union representative in the factory. When I asked him why he did that being that young, he said, I am a little crazy and I do not like injustices. I talked to him in a room at La Nirva that was right next to the street. Marcelo says, I entered the company when I was 21 or 22 years old. I finished high school, I worked in another place, and then I came here. At that point, the workers said the grandote, or the big one, was made with the cheapest ingredients. 
the cheapest flour, the cheapest dulce de leche, the cheapest chocolate. That's why it was one of the cheapest alfajores. But even if it wasn't your favorite alfajor, you couldn't deny its triple layer of cookies and double layer of dulce de leche filling would easily fill you up. Its name was not without a reason. The workers take on different roles at the factory. Noelia, for example, is an empacadora, or packer. Noelia seems to always be smiling, but she's a fierce fighter. She's worked at Lanirva for over 15 years. She even met her husband there. When we spoke, Noelia constantly reminded me of a fact, that 80% of Lanirva's workforce are women. And, she says, contrary to what people may believe, women are not more fragile than men. She describes what making an alfajor entails over the phone. Bueno, acá en la empresa se fabrica lo que son las tapitas, los alfajores, nosotros los llamamos galleta. She says, here in the factory we manufacture the alfajores leads. We call them cookies. Once the oven starts, the kneading is done, and it goes through molds, which make the shape of the alfajor lead. This would be what a normal day at the factory should have looked like. That is, if another economic crisis hadn't hit Argentina. My country has endured a long line of economic crises. Some long, some short, some explosive, and some permanent. In December 2015, then-President Mauricio Macri took office, and market-friendly reforms introduced by the new presidential administration had failed to spark the economy. Instead, these reforms led to record high inflation and unprecedented levels of debt, as well as a sharp rise in poverty and unemployment. Between December 2015 and December 2019, more than 24,000 Argentinian businesses folded. So, after operating the factory for more than 30 years, Lanirva's original owners sold the company in 2017 to Grupo Blend, Grupo Blend is a conglomerate owned by two businessmen, Matías Pérez Paradiso and Marcelo Irribarren. And this is when things began to change for the workers. Twenty seventeen was when everything began to go down, Marcelo said. They started cutting work hours, they started cutting overtime, they took away incentives and bonuses we had. Then, he said, we started to work just three times a week. That was not all. Monica, an employee who has worked at the factory for more than 20 years, noticed that the merchandise wasn't going out. She remembered what it was like when I interviewed her during a protest in the streets of Buenos Aires. We kept producing, Monica said, but the product would just stay in the warehouse. Sometimes they'd have to open up boxes of alfajores and throw them away because they'd gone bad. Monica also told me that had never happened before in her 20 plus years in the factory. And that wouldn't be the end of it. These changes were piling up. Instead of getting their salary monthly, the workers started getting paid erratically, every two weeks or so. Their salary was also slashed, and the owners often didn't pay on time. Carmen, the cook and operator, who I also interviewed at the protests, explains. 
darnos chirola, poquita plata por quincena, que no alcanzaba. Y bueno, después de ahí ya nos producimos más, nos cortaron la luz, el agua, el gas, en la fábrica. Then we stopped producing, Carmen said. Electricity, water and gas to the factory were all cut. The workers were worried. Noelia, the empacadora, told me that they were concerned about the new manager. He can't pay the bills, so how is he going to pay us, she thought. Those fears were more than justified. In 2019, We weren't working for a year, but at least we were getting paid, Carmen said. Then, no more payments. Lanirba had long produced alfajores for supermarkets and gas stations, which paid for their shipments in advance. When Grupo Blend took over, these stores continued handing out advance payments. But now, they were not getting their cookies in return. Then, almost half of the workers were laid off. It was late 2019, and the beloved grandote had disappeared from every store. The street vendors stopped selling it on trains. Their jingle stopped playing on the radio. The grandote was nowhere to be found. Facundo Calabro, the alfajor taster, said this had a big impact on Argentinian life. When a product like this disappears, he said, Argentine culture loses something valuable. He also said two things that are very true. First, legally, a product like the Grandote might belong to a company, to an owner, but in reality, they are part of the cultural heritage because the people make it their own. Second, when an alfajor like the Grandote disappears, Argentina loses part of their culture. That is what happened that year. The workers knew it. It was clear to them that they were not just defending their jobs. Every one of the workers I've spoken to mentioned they deeply cared about their famous grandote, but also about justice. They could not believe someone like Paradiso, the owner, could get his own way. The workers knew they were right, and that ignited a fire in them. Marcelo, the union representative, had to learn how to fight on the fly. He told me he started to call TV channels that covered their protests. We started to call television channels, Marcelo said. The whole thing was new to us. I was the union rep, but I have never faced these kind of issues. During Marcelo's first decade in the factory, the injustices he fought were usually limited to standard union concerns, like lunch breaks not being long enough. There was more at stake when Grupo Blend took over. When Marcelo made noise and tried to defend his fired colleagues, he received an ominous phone call. They threatened me by saying that if I kept bothering, they would shoot me. By October 2019, after almost a year with the factory closed and the workers only receiving portions of their salaries, they went on strike. Marcelo told me they were on Asamblea Permanente, Permanent Assembly, 
That means they were in the factory discussing their situation, but not working. Matias Pérez Paradiso, the new co-owner and majority shareholder, promised to restart production and vowed that he would pay all of the delayed salaries. Before the end of the month, the factory reopened and the workers stopped the strike and made lots of lots of alfajores. The company finally agreed to pay the workers their past due salaries. They handed out checks that were as much as 300,000 pesos, which at the time was about 5,000 US dollars. The workers went home for the holidays with hope, but it wasn't over yet. Many of the workers held on to their new checks. Others needed the money right away, so they cashed theirs with private exchangers or gave them to friends or relatives in exchange for cash. But eventually, they all found out the same thing. The checks had bounced. The company had no funds. Carmen told me she wanted to die when she found out. She even had to ask her family for grocery money because at that point she didn't have any. She was not alone. Marcelo had cashed his check with a friend but then had to sell off a car and other belongings to pay him back. Another worker cashed their check early with street changers and when he failed to pay them back they threatened to kill him. It was a stressful Christmas for the workers. Some of them couldn't buy presents for their kids or even food for the Christmas dinner. Some looked for new jobs, but many feared they'd aged out of the market, especially as the economic crisis made jobs in Buenos Aires scarce for everyone. Collectively, they felt it was the last straw. After the break, protests break out at La Nerva factory. Did you know you can help develop recipes for America's Test Kitchen? It's true. We have nearly 45,000 home testers who try out and give us feedback on new ATK recipes before they're published. Want to be part of the ATK family? Go to americastestkitchen.com slash recipe underscore testing. Once again, that's americastestkitchen.com slash recipe underscore testing to sign up. And now, back to our story. In February 2020, the employees decided to protest right in front of the factory. As news of their fight spread, local school teachers, neighbors, university students, members of leftist political groups, and others all turned out to support them. The workers took turns manning the protest station throughout the night. The neighbors, who were always supportive of the workers and of course the grandote, alerted them to a key piece of new information. They had noticed a truck coming in at night and people taking out pieces of equipment. The workers concluded Grupo Blend wanted to sell the machinery and close the factory altogether. It's a common practice among a very specific kind of Argentine business person. They do this so, when they go bankrupt, they don't have anything in the factory to sell and pay the workers. But employees weren't willing to let that happen. 
They wanted the factory to survive. That's when they decided to guard the factory at all times. Their daytime protests expanded into overnight encampments. We stood up here at the gates, Marcelo said, and that's how the encampments began. We went through everything, the pandemic, the cold, the rain. They even put up makeshift tents. And then the pandemic broke out. It felt like the seven plagues, and that was just the beginning. But the workers resisted, with solidarity coming from everywhere. Antonella, a single mother who works at the factory, told me that when she had to go home to take care of her newborn daughter, her father stood in for her at the factory. That was not all. Supportive neighbors offered their houses for bathroom breaks, along with cookies to eat or mate, a very Argentinian way to infuse some heat and energy into the body. But of course, things would get even more complicated. It was the night of May 10. The workers had been protesting peacefully for a week when local police patrols decided to visit them. The reason they gave was that the workers were hanging outside during the COVID-19 lockdown. The workers insisted they had no other choice. Marcelo told me that 10 police cars came out of nowhere. They pointed guns at the workers. The police cars chased the workers out and they even took Marcelo to the police station. After a couple of hours, Marcelo was released, and the workers defiantly returned to the protest. Two days after the encounter with the police, Barrios de Pie, a non-governmental organization that does community work in low-income neighborhoods, helped organize an Osha Popular at the entrance of the factory. Osha Popular roughly translates to communal cooking pot, and it is meant literally and figuratively. The local community comes together and shares food, usually for a social cause. They help the workers fill their spirits and fill their stomachs with hot chocolate for breakfast and a traditional pasta stew for lunch. For many, the food was more than a gesture. It was much-needed sustenance. That's Paula, a young worker who had only been at the factory for two years when the conflict started. When I asked her over the phone to remember what it was like when she first arrived at La Nirva, she said she felt like the new one, but the fight would transform her. Paula tells me that some of the workers would take whatever was left over from the Osha Popular back home to feed their families. For three long months, the workers were there, avoiding trucks from going in and taking the machinery. They were defending their sustenance and defending a national emblem. Meanwhile, some of them would go to a lot of unfruitful meetings with Matias Paradiso at the Labor Ministry, which mediated the encounters. The new owner would promise to pay his debts and then do nothing. The workers were losing their patience. That is, until Paradiso made them a new promise. They would pay back half the amount they were owed. And better yet, the deal stipulated that if Grupo Blend didn't pay up, Paradiso would have to give the workers the keys to the factory. 
The deal was signed by Paradiso, the workers, and a representative of the labor ministry. It is official, the workers thought. But the deadline came and went, and Paradiso didn't pay one single peso. The workers, exhausted and frustrated, consulted with their lawyers. Their lawyers, Noelia told me, said that since Paradiso did not comply with his part of the deal, they could enter the factory to keep protesting. So the workers did that. Of course, they had to break in. They entered, and everything was still there, more or less as they remembered it. The three assembly lines, the oversized ovens, the chocolate and sugar coater, and even their white aprons. Paula says they thought, okay, we made it back in, what now? The workers thought of what's called recovering the factory and turning it into a workers' cooperative. They got the idea from the country's recent history. Let me take you back in time so you know what I'm talking about. In the late 1990s, due to economic mismanagement, Argentina increasingly relied on cheap imported goods, causing local factories to fold left, right and center. It was not an uncommon sight to see businesses empty out their factories, sell the machinery and lay off all of their employees the same way Paradiso did with La Nirva. But not all workers were willing to pack up and go home. Since the later half of the 1990s, across the country, former employees have occupied all kinds of companies to revitalize the shattered businesses and keep their jobs. Even a famous four-star hotel in downtown Buenos Aires was occupied. The companies were then turned into workers' cooperatives and run by their employees. A movement was born, the Empresas Recuperadas, Spanish for Recovered Companies. Most of the time, it was very hard for the workers to get any kind of recognition. They were ignored by the authorities if they were lucky. When they weren't, the police brutally interrupted their protests. The phenomenon got a lot of political and public attention. In 2004, a new center-left administration under Nestor Kirchner created a program for self-managed worker cooperatives. And the government has since built a structure to legalize recovered companies. Still, getting a cooperative recognized is no piece of cake. The legal procedures workers have to go through are lengthy. And of course, the business owners never let go easily. That laid the groundwork for what went on in La Nirva in 2020. The workers at La Nirva had just entered the factory. There was enough remaining raw material for them to get back to work, and they had all the labor they needed to restart production. After seven months, they finally could turn on the ovens again. They would make their first batch of alfajores without a boss. It was almost instinctive. Of course, they still needed clients, so Lanirva's workers became their own salespeople. Each one took the alfajores to resell on their own. For example, 
Paula told me that she took the alfajores to stores around her neighborhood and put up signs outside her home so people would know that she was selling them. Of course, they were a success, but this was not a sustainable business model. The idea of turning the factory into an empresa recuperada, a recovered company, slowly started to become a reality. The workers looked at old archives and paperwork, trying to find the names of clients and resellers so they could sell to stores again. With the help of the Movimiento Nacional de Empresas Recuperadas, National Movement of Recovered Companies, they started an application with the government institution that regulates worker cooperatives. Getting official recognition from the government would be a major step toward their goal of legally taking control of the factory. In July 2020, they finally received the news. They were legally recognized as a workers' cooperative. Noelia says that they didn't even think about forming a cooperative while camping outside the factory, but she felt that it was the right call, that all that sacrifice was worth it. The workers voted to name Marcelo president of the cooperative. Then they got the first big client, a seller who used to work with La Nirva, contacted the newly formed cooperative and asked them to produce alfajores for a new brand. That company would even provide the raw materials, meaning the workers had a path to restoring full production. But the fight was far from over. It was the night of December 7, 2020. The workers got a group text from the guard at the factory. He'd just been kicked out by a gang of thugs whom, he assumed, had been sent by the owners. Word of the break-in spread, and the workers descended on the factory, assembling out front, and once again, they weren't alone. Neighbors, leftist group members, and even their lawyer showed up at the gates. Their lawyer did not have good news. The lawyer had told them that, since the legalities of disagreement were murky, their options were clear. Either they take the factory back by force, or they could go home. Marcelo and the rest of the workers were desperate. The factory was locked from the inside, and the description the night guard gave of the men inside didn't exactly paint them as feeble. While the workers discussed what they should do, they suddenly realized Marcelo was no longer by their side. Noelia, Paula, and the rest of the workers looked at the gates again, and they couldn't believe what they saw. Marcelo had gotten into his Fiat, backed up and rammed his car into the corner of the warehouse's gates. He crashed his car into the gates over and over, until he did it. He created a way in. Marcelo told me it felt like a movie. Noelia spoke about the adrenaline rush and that they weren't thinking. She told me that their options were clear, either they fought or they lost it all. The workers and their neighbors ran inside the factory, the woman leading the way. Marcelo was behind them with a piece of steel in hand. Then they saw their opponents, 
Paula told me they were enormous, like bouncers in a disco. But she also said that the workers had a weapon that their opponents did not. They knew the factory like the back of their hands. They had chosen their entry points strategically to execute their plan, and soon they had the opponents cornered and outnumbered. Fueled by the adrenaline of the whole situation, the workers and their neighbors chased the thugs right out the factory. A fervent crowd of more workers and supporters were waiting outside, chanting, Workers united, and screw those who don't like it. I visited the factory recently and the workers gave me a little tour. Out of the 10 offices that were used by the owners and managers, all remained empty except for the one workers used for meetings. That reflects a change in the decision-making process. Everything is solved through assemblies. No one boss makes all the calls. Carmen, the cook and operator, had an idea, which they all agreed on, to add a new product to the selection, panettone a sweet bread traditionally eaten on Christmas, which she knew how to make. Many of the workers have taken on new tasks and responsibilities. Noelia, the cookie packer who now serves as a member of the executive committee, says that learning to administer the company was the hardest part of the takeover. Paula told me that they learned those kind of things, like making sales or doing balance sheets, from other cooperatives and YouTube tutorials. I asked Marcelo whether consumers can taste the difference between a cookie made by a privately owned company and one that is owned by its workers. He says they can, since they improve the quality of everything compared to the previous owners. They buy good chocolate, good dulce de leche, good flour. He says that businessmen only think about money, 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 but the workers think about quality. Facundo Calabro, the alfajor taster from the beginning of the episode, agreed. He said that the alfajores are more refined now. And I myself have tasted the new version of the alfajor. It's the grandote, remember, but much better. However, the fight is far from over. On December 30, 2021, the workers got a message in a group chat. Judge Fernando de Alessandro had served them with an eviction notice, stemming from a complaint made by Paradiso. On January 6, the workers held a protest outside the factory, still flanked by their neighbors and supporters. There, Noelia told me that they ended the previous year with a bitter taste in their mouths. Estaba muy triste, ¿entendés? Pensar que te vas a quedar en la calle y que más si te que nada. She told me there is the thought that we could be left out in the streets again, and also the anger of seeing that a man who has scammed many people, is getting support from the judicial system. The possibility of the workers being expelled from the factory quickly took its toll on the cooperative. The cooperative's lawyers appealed it, which bought them some time. On February 10, there was a massive march from the Obelisk, a landmark in the heart of Buenos Aires, to the National Court on Commercial Matters where the eviction request by Paradiso was being heard. A fervent crowd, 
made of workers, activists, and neighbors, stood in front of the building, clapping, hands in the air, jumping and chanting. I went there with the workers. They are chanting, Matias Paradiso is a conman, and Irva's workers keep producing without a boss. We won't stop fighting until we win. The eviction is not going to happen. Among all that noise, Marcelo, Paula, and a third worker named Lorena made their way into the courthouse. They were told that, in the eyes of the law, they were illegally occupying the factory, at least until La Nirva officially declares bankruptcy. But things are looking good in that regard. Marcelo spoke before the crowd and remembered everything they went through. The cold, the pandemic, hunger, threats. He passed the microphone to an initially reluctant Paula, who finally grabbed it and said, On behalf of the 55 families who depend on this factory, we will keep fighting. Paula added, La Nirva is, and will continue to be, of its workers. The crowd repeated Paula's last words with yet another wave of chants. The alfajor of the people was not alone. In 2021, Paula would become a candidate for councilwoman for a left-wing party. Marcelo was voted once again to preside over the cooperative. Nearly 60 of the workers are still part of La Nirva, still operating as a fábrica recuperada to this day. They joined efforts with another cooperative to produce another product, alfajores made out of beer bagasse or beer byproduct, which helps the environment. Although their operation is still not as massive as it was before, the grandote is back on shelves and back into the hands of hungry Argentinians. Thanks to Facundo Iglesia for bringing us today's story. You could read his and Sofia Kwan's original story, Revolución on the Cookie Factory Floor, at narratively.com, where you'll find more tales of ordinary people with extraordinary stories. If you like proof, be sure to subscribe wherever you listen so you'll get new episodes as soon as they drop. And while you're there, why not leave us a rating or write us a review? It really helps other people find the show. This episode of Proof is hosted by me, Kevin Pang, and the podcast is made by the following cast of characters. I'm Yumi Araki, the managing producer. I'm executive producer, Caitlin Kelleher. I'm supervising producer, Caroline Rickert. I'm Terrence Johnson, and I'm the associate producer. I'm Alex Curran Cardarelli, and I'm also an associate producer. I'm Bridget Lancaster, creator and the founding host and producer. Audio services are provided by Ultraviolet Audio with sound design supervision by Matt Boynton, scoring, mixing, and sound design by Anya Gzeshik, and additional engineering by Justin Garish, Brian Campbell of Signal Sounds Composer Theme Music, additional music by Kyle Forster and Jordan Pearson. Ken Margolis is our director of post-production, and our director of production is Diane Knox. Fact-checking and additional research by Sheila V. Kumar. Special thanks to Noelia, Paula, Marcelo, Lorena, Carmen, Monica, and all the workers at La Nerva for sharing their stories with Facundo and Sofia. 
Thanks also to Brendan Spiegel and Noah Rosenberg and Narratively for their partnership on this story. Special thanks to Facundo Calabro for sharing his passion about the Alpha Whore. And thanks to Juan Pablo Hudson for the great information on the Empresas Recuperadas. And finally, thanks to Alejandro Vargas at Ficatin Studio for his engineering support. Jack Bishop is the Chief Creative Officer, and Dan Surratt is America's Test Kitchen's CEO. Thanks to our sponsors, Eglin's Best, Plugra Premium Butter, and the Augusta Scoffier School of Culinary Arts. Proof is a production of America's Test Kitchen.